0: I read the first book in Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials series, The Golden Compass, when I was nearing the end of elementary school. From the opening scene, I remember falling in love with young heroine Lyra and her Damon Pan. Back then, I thought that Pan was just a cute animal sidekick who would change forms and offer Lyra valuable advice in times of need. How fun, right? Well, it turns out that I underestimated the whole Damon thing. In Pullman's beautifully designed world, daemons, as I now understand them, are actually the tangible external representations of a human's inner soul. Learning this on my recent reread made the rest of the book's plot seem that much more messed up. The big picture conflict of the golden compass is a scheme designed by the ruling church, aka the magisterium, to kidnap vulnerable children and physically divide them from their daemons. Allow me to remind you that those are actually their souls in the name of research. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Generally speaking, my experience with reading this book as an adult revealed the rich and complicated world that Lyra lives in. It's about way more than furry animal friends, people. This complexity sets the stage for so much interesting discussion. In this episode, you'll hear us talk about politics, a child's loyalty, the Garden of Eden, the pros and cons of seeing the future, the nature of souls, puberty, loneliness, ruling religious bodies, failed movie adaptations, and so much more. Even with all of this, I can't help but think that we barely scratched the surface. There's just so much going on in this book. This week's guest is Elena Nicolaou. She's an entertainment writer at Refinery29, where she covers everything from podcasts to Netflix's latest viral hit to her biggest love, books. Follow her on Bookstagram at BooksAndElena and and on Twitter at Wonders. I am thrilled to have her joining us for this episode, and I absolutely loved chatting with her about all things Golden Compass. Don't forget to join the SSR social media party by following us on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. It makes me so happy every time I see you tagging an episode in your Instagram stories, so please do keep that up. If you're enjoying the show, I would also humbly ask you to leave a 5-star rating and review on iTunes. These are actually a pretty big deal because they drive the visibility of the show for potential new listeners. Looking for one more way to show your support for SSR? Become a Patreon sponsor. Visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for all the details. When you become a sponsor, you support the show with a few dollars per month and you get some great perks in return. Think monthly newsletters, SSR merch, on-demand book recommendations, bonus episodes, and more. This is an independent podcast, which means I do all the work myself, and that's why these sponsorships are so important. A big shout out to all the Patreon sponsors out there listening. I really appreciate your support. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Hi, Alana. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie.
1: I'm so happy to be on. This is so exciting.
0: You gave me an awesome excuse to reread Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass. I have to tell you, we've been getting a lot of requests for this book.
1: Well, I have been wanting to read this book for a really long time. It's been on my shelves ever since I was a kid, but I think I only read it once or twice. I was obsessed with it and I remained obsessed with it even though I hadn't revisited it. So this has been a really interesting experience to go back and figure out why 11-year-old me was so obsessed with this book.
0: (laughs) It was a question I asked myself also when I was rereading it because I have to imagine that it was a much different experience for me when I was reading it as a kid. We talked about this briefly via email yesterday though and I think it's worth mentioning at the top. The timing for us to be talking about this book is perfect because Mm -hmm. the trailer for the new BBC adaptation just came out I think two weeks ago according to YouTube so this book is like back out there in pop culture
1: and this hopefully is the chance to get the screen adaptation right because I don't know if you remember the movie that came out was very sanitized it had wiped out all of the like rock and roll energy which is in the book so much and I hope that the BBC adaptation is adequately dark because the movie was not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I read a lot of criticism of the movie while I was preparing for our conversation. I never saw it, so I don't know. But from what I've read about it, it sounds like it was kind of a lame effort.
1: Yeah, it seemed like they were just trying to please people. And what Philip Pullman did, he was not interested in pleasing people with this book. He just wanted to tell a really good story. And so hopefully that will be the theme or the ethos that drives the new adaptation. The trailer looked pretty good but it wasn't giving away any of its secrets.
0: (laughs) Which I like. I'm excited to see it. I don't watch a lot of BBC but I was watching the trailer this morning and I said to my husband, I was like, we're gonna have to watch this and he has never read the book and he's a huge Game of Thrones fan and I was reading it I was like, you have to read this book! How did you not get into this as a kid? Because he loved Tolkien, he loved all of that like high fantasy stuff and my mind is still kind of blown that he never got around to it. So I think in my household, he's gonna be reading the golden compass for the first time hopefully soon and then we are gonna get very excited about the bbc adaptation
1: yeah lyra has some real Arya stark energy seriously they could take over the world i think if we put them together i'm sure your husband will like it yeah they'd be the ultimate team like the ultimate girl power team yeah they're pretty ruthless for they're like ruthless preteens yeah, I love it. So let's get into the book. Like,
0: what do you remember of the first time you read it? Do you remember how old you were? Like, what, what comes back to you when you think about the first time experiencing The Golden Compass, which, for the record, yeah. came out in 1996 here in the U.S. It came out in 1995 in the U.K., where it was originally titled Northern Lights.
1: Fun fact. Yeah. Northern Lights. That gives me such a different image in my head than The Golden Compass. But So I remember reading The Golden Compass when I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old. And for me, my reading of it was always defined in relation to Harry Potter for some reason. I remember reading this and saying, like, oh, wow, this is as good as Harry Potter, but it's so different. And I think for a while, I almost liked it more than Harry Potter because it felt like it was almost like illicit. Like I was reading something that adults, like, might not necessarily approve of me reading. like It just felt like a wild ride in a book that assumed that I, as a child, was intelligent, that I was intelligent enough to follow along. And it was so exciting. I loved these books. And I think maybe it was because they were really like hard. Even reading this as an adult, I was struck by how lofty and difficult it is and almost impressed that this author just assumed that kids would be able to follow along because I think that a lot of times children's intelligence is underestimated. And, and he was a middle grade teacher, so he knew what kids were capable of understanding. And uh, I guess I, I loved that. I loved that he assumed that I would smart. <laughs> Thanks, Philip Pullman,
0: for giving us a lot of credit as kids. I totally yeah. agree with you. I have this memory of feeling like I wasn't supposed to be reading it. And I don't I don't really know even now where that comes from, maybe other than the fact that there was so much of it that I didn't understand. Yeah. Um, I remember having to look up a lot of words. And the interesting thing about this book is that there's a lot of words in it that feel like they should be real but aren't actually words or vice versa and so I remember being a kid and like trying to figure out what words to ask my mom about because I couldn't mm-hmm. tell if she would even know which ones were actually English words or maybe they're rooted right. in mythology or something like I just didn't know and even as an adult I found myself stumbling over a lot of words that were yeah. brand new to me.
1: Yeah the vocabulary in the book is very elevated I mean on just on a sentence level I love that I was reading this interview he did with The Guardian it was like early 2000s. And somebody asked him, like, how do you get kids to read this book? I've been trying to I think it was a librarian writing, and he said, what I recommend is tell the kid that this book is forbidden, that it has too many things that are bad for them, it has sex and religion and violence, and they're not allowed to read it, and then put it on the top shelf and leave the room for an hour, and they'll definitely read it. And so for me, like that was this book. It was people saying, no, you shouldn't read this, and then really wanting to read it and wanting to rise to the occasion and look up the words and and figure out what the heck was going on.
0: Yeah, I totally echo your experience comparing it to Harry Potter also, because I think I've Probably read it when I was eleven or twelve. I can't see myself reading it when it was when I was much younger, just because it is elevated, like you said. And I read Harry Potter when I was like nine, I think. So this probably came after Harry Potter for me. I remember reading it on a trip to Florida with my grandparents, and in hindsight, like this is so not something I'd read at the beach now as an adult. <laughs> but it felt like such an like an engaging beach read to an eleven year old, and it took me the whole trip. It was you know, reading out on the plane and like having that time to really dig into this high fantasy book, which was totally my genre at the time. Like I loved all things fantasy. And I don't remember picking it up myself. I think maybe somebody bought it for me because I I remember like not being convinced to buy the cover of it. And and you tweeted some of the old covers, which was cool. But I remember being like, I don't know if I get this cover. Is this a book for me? At that time I was very taken with you know, and this is a controversial thing, like girl books versus boy books. And I like couldn't tell if this was sort of my thing. Somebody gave it to me, probably having seen it on like an end cap and being like, this looks like the next hot thing. Mm-hmm. But I loved it. And I ate it up over that trip. And I think I came back to it at some point a few years later, but I don't remember that reading quite as vividly as the experience of like sitting by the pool with my grandparents eating French fries with the golden compass.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This book really defies that girl book, boy book stereotyping that unfortunately, I think it did exist a lot um, in kids' books, but so does Harry Potter. So maybe that was like that kind of, it it breached the divide. But what I like about this is like Harry Potter sort of starts off middle grade and then transitions into YA. And I definitely read this like at the point where I was getting into Harry Potter's older years, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But this book, like just it's in a league of its own technically this book is billed as like middle grade so it just sort of skips that transition that easing into darker themes immediately and by page like what 30 there are kids being stolen like it gets dark quick and I kind of I admire that like there isn't really an on-ramp for adulthood for a lot of people like it's just he, he plunges you in and that's kind of what being a kid feels like all the time like you're just constantly plunged into things that are scary and you don't know what's going on so This book doesn't coddle the reader at all.
0: I read a few interviews with him where he was talking about how he didn't really have an audience in mind. As you said, he's a middle grade teacher. And so I think that probably served him well, just having a good sense of like the 11, 12-year-old brain. But this is a quote that I read from him in Slate. He said, I don't know whether The Golden Compass is a young adult book or a children's book or adult book that somehow sneaked its way into a children's bookstore. I don't actually think about the audience, which hilarious as a writer. I don't think about my readers at all. Also a little hilarious. I think about the story I'm writing and whether I'm writing it clearly enough to please me. If you asked what sort of audience I would like, I would say a mixed one, please.
1: Mm. Yeah. And that works so well. I mean, I enjoyed reading this book so much as an adult. What did you think? Did you enjoy it as much?
0: Yeah. And I've talked about this a few times on the podcast, how, as I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, like I loved high fantasy so much as a kid. And I know that there are great fantasy series out there that are intended for adults, but it's just not something that I've ever gravitated toward. I haven't ever sought those series out. Just hasn't really been my thing as an adult and getting back into a book like this that I already sort of had, like an anchor point to knowing that there was a nostalgic factor, knowing that I would like it, knowing that there'd be some familiarity going into it. I was excited to read it. And it was such a nice memory of like what high fantasy can feel like and how brilliant an author like this is. I mean, the world building is insane.
1: It really is. And even the points where he's like telling, not showing, which happens a lot, especially when he's explaining like the mechanics of dust, all of these very lofty ideas, it's still so interesting like it still pulls you in I I didn't mind that there were parts where he was like okay this is what's going on and it just sort of explained it which I don't know if that's like one of the rules of world building but and that if he was breaking it but I enjoyed it anyway
0: (laughs) what did you think as we sort of opened on Lyra in those first few pages those first few chapters we talked about how quickly, I think we both realized that it was going to be a different reading experience as adults versus kids. And we meet Lyra. She's 12 years old. She's kind of just like running around Oxford College with her Damon, who I'm going to try to pronounce his full name correctly. Listeners, there's a lot of very long names and proper nouns in this book. We're going to do our very best. Her Damon goes by Pan, but I believe his full name is pronounced Pantelaman, Uh, That's what I said. Is that what you say too? Okay. Yeah. Her daemon who's sort of this like soul that lives outside her body in the form of an animal that can change. And I say that now feeling very confident about it because I've done all of this other reading before we (laughs) talked. But I have to say it was hard for me to put such a fine point on like what a daemon was. Like I I didn't necessarily wrap my head around the fact that like, oh, this is meant to be her soul outside of her body until I read all of these think pieces about it. So That's who Pan is. That's what Pan is. They live at Oxford College. She's kind of just like frolicking around, hanging out with the scholars who who study there, and she kind of like takes care of herself for the most part.
1: Yeah, and occasionally she gets into trouble. Like she hijacks a boat for fun. She's a total like ragamuffin. She does not abide by any rules. No one's looking out for her. Yeah, but. The very first scene, she stops an assassination. So, like, it, it's a quite a f- opening scene that you have this little kid who's witnessing her guardians conspiring to kill somebody. Like, that is a huge thing for any twelve year old to handle, and the fact that she has to like handle that from the first scene on, I think it just shows that her world is about to get completely shifted because the people that she trusted are capable of murder. And once you put that in a kid's head that like that means that all of the other rules are broken. That scene also shows like how unreliable most of the adults are in this book. Like adults are public enemy number 1. Never trust them.
0: <laughs> yeah, they can't be believed. It also I feel like really complicated her loyalties right from the start because exactly. she's preparing for the arrival of her uncle Lord Azriel, who's this like very dashing, powerful politician. And we're meant to admire him, I think, from... From the first moment we meet him. And as you said, she stops an assassination of him, but by the master who lives on campus, who she is loyal to, sort of day to day in person, the man who looks out for her. Whereas Lord Azrael is sort of like her distant family member who she idolizes. So she's already faced with the decision of like, who am I supposed to believe? Who am I looking out for? What's my role mm-hmm. in this situation? And I think that as an adult was such, such like a moment for me to realize what this book is really about because as a kid I think in those first few pages I was really drawn to Lyra just as a character and like like you said she's a ragamuffin she has these adventures she gets to be mature and that she takes care of herself in this world where everybody else is older than she is she has this fun little talking animal friend which is definitely how you see daemons or at least how I saw them when I was little and now I'm like, no, this is all politics. Like there's this mm-hmm. much deeper, more complex network of things going on around her that she's now involved with. And immediately I realized like this is gonna feel much more complicated reading it as an adult than it did as a kid.
1: Yeah, and not only is she involved, she's like destined to be a part of it. And the adults know that and they are gonna use her. And everyone is trying to use her. So it's it's like puts her in this very Uncomfortable position. She has to learn how to play the adult's game very quickly because she's 12 years old and she does, she's never been an adult before. But it doesn't have to say that all of the adults are bad. There are some some lovely ones like witches and Egyptians it was and I couldn't tell also if there was like a
0: a class like a race thing there there are a lot of different like intricacies where I was like are we you know how are we supposed to interpret all of these different groups we go to all these different villages we meet all of these different sects of people and I was trying to figure out like how are we supposed to read each of them? You know, where do they fit mm-hmm. in in this bigger society, which is a parallel universe to ours? There are things about it that feel very familiar. Obviously, we have Oxford College, and that's something that most of us are aware of. Like, we know what that is. And so I think reading it as a kid at first, I was like, oh, this is my world. Like, Oxford College, mm-hmm. I know what that is. That's a thing in England. You know, my mom told me about that. But then as you get into it, you're like, there are twists on a lot of things that feel familiar to us. There's a lot of things that are brand new. And it just really, I like when authors play with that where. It's like not all completely out of our comfort zone, but there's enough to make you question the world. I thought it was really cool
1: yeah no and definitely she grows up like ensconced among the elite but you also get the sense that her time there is ending because she's a girl yeah. so she has no like women role models at all and I think as an adult reader that was something that struck me like how few women are in the book except for her guardian who she briefly has mom Macosta. Costa but yeah, the the way, like if a girl comes to Oxford College, they have to eat in a separate dining room. So my eyes were like popping out of my head when I was reading this as an adult. I wonder if I had picked up on that when I was 11, like the gender politics of this world and how messed up it was. Well, and she'd
0: been raised to believe that women scholars were disgusting. I think, I think yes. the word might've actually been disgusting. Cause I remember at, at first when the news came up that there was a woman scholar coming. I was like, oh, this is so great. She's going to be so excited. And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, but I hate them. Like, I'm not supposed to like them. And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? And that she's so fully bought into whatever these men have told her.
1: Yeah. And it was a lot of internalized misogyny. Now we know those words. Uh, Yes, that's (laughs) all too familiar to us now, isn't it? Yes. But that scholar does not turn out to be what she appears to be at first either. So even the one woman she meets is turns out to be evil. Yeah, maybe <laughs>
0: maybe she didn't get such bad intel on that after all, if, or if our only yeah. point of reference is Mrs. Coulter, who I think we should start talking about now because she's a super yeah. interesting character. Picture Nicole Kidman, everyone, because yeah. she definitely was well cast in the 2007 movie as Mrs. Coulter. I read somewhere that Philip Pullman actually sort of like recast her in later books as having white-blindness blonde hair, which I didn't realize, but in the first book that we just read, The Golden Compass itself, she has dark hair. And later on, her hair gets lighter and lighter. And the critic that was writing this particular piece was saying like, it was because Nicole Kidman was so perfect that she just kind of like embodied Mrs. Coulter.
1: Yeah. In my head, she was definitely blonde, to uh-huh. be clear. <laughs> she was like an icicle piercing my heart. She really scared me. I mean, that sort of kind of treacly guardian who pretends she has the best interest of her wart at heart but is actually quite evil has actually been something we've been seeing a lot in pop culture lately like in everything from sharp objects to this new show that's coming out the act like mothers who cannot be trusted with their children um the fact that mrs coulter does end up being spoiler her mother didn't surprise me well it it really surprised me but then looking back i'm like oh man this just makes her so much more evil The way she wanted to change Lyra and make her uh, someone who was fit the boxes of being a girl and got rid of all of those sharp edges and, and that ragamuffin quality I admired so much. It was quite scary to, to watch Lyra's spirit leaping over the pages like slowly sapping out of her.
0: She reminded me very much of the White Witch in, in the Narnia books, which we've covered yeah. on the show before. Just that idea of this like beautiful woman who rolls up in this sled and like offers you all these treats and wants to win you over to her way of thinking. Like It's not just about her wanting to take care of you and wanting to get to know you. It's just about that she wants to like brainwash you.
1: Yes. And it works. It really works at first. That's a scary thing. I mean, Lyra hasn't ever been shown so much attention before. So when she has a woman saying like, hi, I'm going to make you the center of my world. You're going to have to play by my rules, but you'll be the center. She's okay with it at first. She calls her wonderful, you know, but by paying attention to her Damon, you know, not to trust Mrs. Coulter, which I think is so interesting. Like that was the first indication you really get that Damon's are they, they can't lie like they are the soul of a person when you catch the demon sneaking around and spying that's when you know that Mrs. Coulter is also probably duplicitous
0: well as you were saying Lyra had so few really actually she didn't really have any female role models and right. so it was very easy for her to be taken in with somebody like Mrs. Coulter who was also beautiful and showed her yeah. attention and again like trying to think about what of this probably appealed to me as a kid versus what I was able to read in to now. I think when I was younger I probably was very taken with like the lifestyle that Lyra got to experience for a little while and getting to go shopping and buying all these beautiful clothes and she lives in this beautiful place. And then reading it now, there's moments where she literally is like, Oh, I'm her personal assistant. Like she says that to other adults and reading it as a grown up myself now I'm like, Wow, I did not pick up as a 12 or 13 year old or however old I was when I read this like I didn't pick up on the fact that that's really messed up that she brought this kid in Sort of charmed her with all of these promises and was like, N- No, you're just going to be my assistant. I think I just, I didn't pick up on that as a kid. I was like, You're just going to help her and you're going to learn from her. But she really works for her.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. She has no agency. She has no freedom. And she also still doesn't have a parent. Like this kid has had no adults looking out for her, looking out for her because they love her and because they want what's best for her. She's been used like her either used or neglected her entire life and it's been up to her to see through the illusion it does take her a while though to see through the illusion in this case
0: and luckily she has pan to help her i think pan we definitely need to talk about because he's really our window into what this Damon concept is really all about and their relationship just tugged on my heartstrings so much and there are so many moments throughout the book and this is you know another spoiler although we do plenty of spoilers on the show the sort of the bad guys in this situation, the gobblers, the people that are doing research on kids and kidnapping them, their end goal is to cut kids off from their daemons, like to physically (sighs) break their daemons away from their bodies, which... If we're to to remember the fact that these daemons are meant to symbolize souls, it's really about removing the souls of children from their physical selves. And it's a process that they call intercession. That's very painful physically and emotionally. Lyra meets a kid who dies soon after he goes through this process. And the more we learn about that and the more we realized like the physical pain that Lyra would feel if Pan were to be cut off from her. The situations that the two of them find themselves in where they're like imagining what it would be like not to be together anymore. It was so heartbreaking. And obviously this is a very like watered down version of it. But particularly followers of my social media will know that I have a dog that I'm obsessed with. And I was reading this book and like looking at him and I was like, you're not even my soul. But if somebody removed you from me, I would feel
1: this way. And it's it's really yeah. painful to read. Yeah, oh my gosh. I'm so obsessed with the concept of demons. I am like obsessed. First of all, I spent most of the book thinking about what my daemon would be. Um, and I have not decided yet, but their bond is so fascinating. I love that demons have personalities of their own. Like even from the first page on, Pan is Lyra's like sensible, worrisome side. He's a little neurotic. He thinks about things that she might not think of, or he thinks for her. He's more skeptical of other people. It's like he has her best interest in mind when other people don't. But since he's her soul, that's also like her. She's looking out for herself too. I think that, but the intercession thing, it's amazing that he takes this concept that is unfamiliar to us because we don't have Demons, but by the time you get to that realization it's so awful like it it made me feel sick the idea of people being dehumanized to that degree and like taken the most important thing about them literally physically severed is such a horrible thing to think about and that's all because Pullman has set up this world so well through Pan and Lyra's relationship but when you get to that revelation it's like a dagger in your heart yeah you're like how dare you people yeah Yes, and the fact that the kids die, like, oh my god, there are child killers in this book. It's messed well, up. And that the
0: kid that she meets, and his name is escaping me right now, but the little boy who she meets in the woods who um, has lost his daemon, and it's so tragic because he's clutching this like dead fish when she yeah. meets him because it's like the closest thing that he has. It's almost like a security blanket. like It's giving him comfort because his daemon has been taken away, and it's like something that was once living that he can hold on to and as he dies soon after and it was interesting because when lyra then goes to the research center and is is talking to the other kids about this particular boy who she's met they're almost talking about him at least my impression was that maybe he had some mental disabilities or something like that um And it made it all the more painful because it was like these adults have taken this child that was vulnerable in so many ways. And not only because he was a child, but maybe because he had some other struggles of his own and they've just completely like robbed him of the one thing that made him feel safe and the one entity that was always looking out for him. Because we don't know like if he had parents or if he was on his own. Maybe he's like Lyra and this, you know, whole world Mm -hmm. is overrun with kids that are just having to take care of themselves. And knowing that they've taken this like very vulnerable child and ruined him... Yeah. I think the fact that that's how we are sort of introduced to this whole concept makes it even more terrible. So that was a very smart move on Pullman's part.
1: Right. And then the fact that Yorick, who we haven't even touched on yet, but there's Yorick the bear and he doesn't have a daemon. And so Lyra immediately feels so bad for him because she wonders, oh, this bear must be so alone. He doesn't have a daemon. He doesn't have someone who's always by his side, giving him companionship, talking to him. And so you realize like, this is a world filled with humans who have constant friends, like loneliness. The idea of loneliness is almost less severe because you're never alone when you have your daemon. And it made me feel lonely. Like, I I have to say, I was like, wow, I really wish everyone in the world had a buddy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I wish I could talk to my soul outside my body and actually know (laughs) what he was thinking about. One of the interviews that I read with Pullman, when he was asked about the concept of daemons, maybe you came across this one as well. In the original version, Lyra didn't have a daemon and he thought that she was too lonely And he realized that if he was going to cast his main character as this girl that was alone in the world, didn't have adult guidance, didn't have a present family, didn't have consistent friends, strategically he had to have some being that was going to be there to talk to her and to help her through things. And so that was the inspiration for the Damon idea. And I, I couldn't figure out if that was the catalyst for, like, daemons in the whole universe, or it was just that everybody else in the original conception of the book had daemons and Lyra for some reason didn't. My sense maybe, though, was that that was the inspiration for all of the daemons. Like, he just, he didn't want these characters that were in a very dark, weird world to be so lonely.
1: Yeah, and that becomes so essential to the entire plot of the book, when the plot is taking away demons. It's also interesting to see like all of the small demon mythology nuggets that he ties in throughout the book. I was living for mm-hmm. like, okay, so most demons are the opposite sex as you. So Lyra has a boy daemon, but sometimes there are people who have same sex demons. Then there was this guy whose daemon was a dolphin. So he was stuck in the water his whole life. I was like, mind blown. Yeah, You you love your demon. So you got to stick with where your daemon is. And I, I kept thinking of people with like elephant demons or something, how un that must be.
0: <laughs> yeah. You just have to hang out with your, your Damon and they're going to knock things over wherever you yeah. go. Yeah. Cause Pan, they were on a boat at one point and Pan was like living for the ocean and having the best time. And Lyra was like, I really hope he doesn't love <laughs> yeah. it too much. So sort of like the other interesting concept is that children have daemons that change forms like pan for Mm -hmm. instance is constantly becoming different animals depending on the situation when he's scared he becomes these like fierce cats and the creatures that they can transform into like a lot of them are real but they can also be mythical like they're not all Mm -hmm. real animals and then when a human goes through puberty their daemon locks into one form which pullman said in one of the interviews that i found is like the main point like once he figured that out like everything changed for him in putting the book together
1: yeah i know it it is so essential to like it it has an interesting idea of childhood that like kids are mutable they aren't them they aren't formed yet everything is still up for grabs but then i guess when you go through puberty like know who you are more i mean i would argue with that a little bit but that is like the axis around which the entire book and its mythology orbits because there was like all of this stuff about the garden of eden right did you catch that and that like original sin was when in this world original sin is like different it's like when you know you're demon or something
0: yeah honestly those last i would say like 30 pages where where lord Israel yeah. goes into that whole story it was a little confusing for me i'm not super up to date on my bible stories i don't know that much about original sin outside of the fact that like a lot of people would say that it's all eve's fault which clearly <laughs> i don't agree with um and so that was sort of like the alarm bells that went off in my head when i started to read that part of the book where it was like it goes back to the garden of eden and original sin and right like, if you're gonna turn this background on eve right now when we've been reading this awesome story about a kick-ass <laughs> little girl heroine i'm not gonna be happy but yeah so it's like dust which is the mysterious substance that they're researching throughout the whole book we learn is the physical manifestation of original sin and yet yeah, it, it somehow is tied into your daemon yeah. and I, I wonder how much of that is meant to be like sexual awakening and like once you go through puberty you understand your sexuality and your body differently and like that's where original sin comes into play but I didn't find that he put too fine a point on that and it made it a little confusing for me to be honest yeah. like he didn't quite bring the idea of dust home for me at the end And maybe, maybe we learn more about that in the other books, which I know I read, but I can't remember how much clearer it becomes.
1: I know. I feel like I need to get a PhD in Pullman's philosophy to fully understand this because I agree the last 30 pages are like philosophy dump because Lord Asriel likes to explain things to people who don't totally know what's going on, Lyra and myself included. But I think it has to do like dust has to do with the transition from the state of innocence when you're a kid to the state of experience when you're an adult. And once you become an adult, go through puberty, you start attracting dust. And that is like the marker of of sin. It's like this threshold. Mm. If, If only that was how adulthood really started, like some biological step that isn't how I don't know it's just like very it's sort of like a narrow definition of adulthood I guess is what I mean to say but that's what this book is is using
0: and I'm not familiar with Paradise Lost I haven't read it but I do know that Pullman was very influenced by Paradise Lost and by John Milton and one quote that I found of his um when being asked about the connection between the Golden Compass and Milton and Paradise Lost was, um, he said, well, the Dark Materials is, of course, a retelling of the Miltonic temptation and fall, but most of what happens after the Golden Compass ends, and what I wanted to do was represent the fall as entirely good. It is good for people to know things, to grow up, to become sexual beings, and that crystallized it a little better for me, because as you're saying, it made me realize, like, at the end of the book, we're meant to understand that, like, we're learning about what happens after you're not a kid anymore, and that maybe it's not so terrible and you know your daemon comes into its own you become a stronger person it doesn't have to be so bad
1: and leaving the garden of eden by that also doesn't have to be a bad thing like this is what we've been punished for you know in like religion it's Mm -hmm. it was a it's why we're like still being punished but for Pullman it was a good thing it was a good thing that we left and it's a good thing I guess that people grow up but it is pretty radical like this book is a children's book or I guess in everyone's book, but it carries a philosophy that is antithetical, I think, to a lot of other philosophies. So I don't know. It's like a Trojan horse of a book. You read it for the story, but it, it packs a lot of ideas in there that I think when you're an adult, you can pick up on a lot more. But I'm sure when you're a kid, you can pick up on them too.
0: I read that, that a lot of religious education professors teach this book, but at the same time, there's for obvious reasons, tons of religious people, religious organizations that ban it. And I think it's really fascinating that it's so polarizing um because at first glance it it's very anti-church very anti-organized religion the whole universe is run by this religious body called the magisterium and they're behind all these terrible things that happen they're the reason that the gobblers are kidnapping the children they're the reason that all these experiments are going on why they're being taken from their families why their souls are literally being cut from their bodies but at the same time i can see how some religious professors be like somewhere in here is a message about like how you find your faith and Mm -hmm. like what it's actually about to have a relationship with yourself and with a greater power and like how that all rolls out so I think it's pretty fascinating that you can find both of those messages in this book. Philip Pullman is, I think, definitely an atheist from what I've found. And um, there's a lot of readings of this book that are specific to the Catholic Church and the abuse of the Catholic Church against children, um, which unfortunately we hear far, 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 far too often. So I think there's... You can sort of read a lot of messages in this book, depending on where you come from spiritually.
1: Yeah. And your age and everything. I mean, I feel like this is a book that should be reread like in every major life phase as you accrue knowledge because it just keeps getting better and you remember who you used to be when you read it and and how that person must have interpreted it. I'm sure when I was a kid what I harped on the most was how bad I felt for her because her parents are both so terrible. Mm. Because they are the worst parents, I think. Second to like Matilda's parents. They're Ugh. awful. And when she stands up to her dad and calls him not a human, my hand is there. <laughs> I pulled out a quote of what she said to
0: him at the end because like she's learned that Lord Israel is not her uncle but is her dad and she's been like so hard to find him, to release him from prison that he can go back to doing what she thinks is good work. She's been to hell and back in order to rescue him. And then at the end of the book he cuts her best friend Rogers Damon from him so that he can like absorb the energy that's released and finally create the portal to this other world that he's been exploring. So he's just an evil person. Like she's done all this work in order to get to him, in order to be like, I know I'm your daughter. How cool is that? Like let me help you. Let's work together. And he completely fucks her over. And she says, so you should have told me before, that's what. You shouldn't hide things like that from people because they feel stupid when they find out and that's cruel. What difference would it make if I knew I was your daughter? You could have said it years ago. And she goes on and on. But like the fact that this 12-year-old girl Mm -hmm. is standing up to a powerful man who's already proven himself to be shady and terrible, like I don't think adult women stand up. For themselves this way. Like I'm not very good at setting myself up in this way and just kind of like calling people out and being like, This is what you did. Let me explain to you why it pisses me off. And that's the bottom line. Like, explain to me why you did this to me. And uh yeah. I just love that about her. Like she is able to navigate all of these very like magical, fantastical situations, but she also can directly take somebody on in what feels like a much more true to life scenario.
1: You know, in another book, the father. Of- his eyes would crinkle. He'd realize that he had been wrong the whole time. His heart would melt. He'd hug his daughter. That does not happen here. He's so cold. He's essentially says like, yeah, so what? That's the equivalent of what he says after she essentially calls him like subhuman. Mm -hmm. And, Lyra may have two parents who are alive they may have a huge confrontation by the end of the book which she witnesses but she's an orphan in my book her parents do not love her they do not have her best interest at heart and that is almost like Harry Potter knew his parents loved him his parents died for him they died for him because they loved him so much and she has these two parents who are in front of her living and they don't do they're worse than uncaring they're evil so that is to read, find that in a children's book, to know that sometimes the people that you're born to are not good people, they might not have your best interests at heart, that's, that's a, also a pretty radical idea for kids to be confronted with. And I'm sure there are some kids who are happy that they had their experiences represented in some twisted way, too.
0: And she even says it explicitly at some point in this last section where, like, Mrs. Coulter shows up. She's there with Lord Azrael. And she's like, my two parents, together. How cool is this? And I think a lot of kids can relate to that for many different reasons of, like, you know, whatever drama their parents have gone through, are going through, just, like, the beauty of seeing your parents in one place is Mm -hmm. really an amazing feeling when it's not something you're used to. And then you go into the scene that, if you take a step back, it's, it's almost comical because you have these two, like, presumably hot, power hungry. definitely hot. (laughs) Beautiful people. And it's almost soap opera-ish. And they're like, well, here's how I think we should get power. And like, here's how I think we should get power. And like, should we work together or should we separate? And she's just kind of watching this scene like what the hell happened like how am i even alive with you two people as parents how did how did you fall in love are you capable of love and it's just kind of fascinating to to watch them interact and to see it through lyra's eyes i thought that was like a really cool scene and one that i would definitely want to see play out on screen
1: yeah so pafra is the right word it was like it was like house of cards plus game of thrones Filtered through a child's eyes, it was so good. Luckily for Lyra, she does meet adults along the way who who do love her and who can be stand-in moms and dads. She has a bear. She has the woman who raised her and like breastfed her when she was a kid. She has some very wise Egyptians, and it does show like the importance of found family and finding people who you love and even though you're not blood-related to them, that ultimately that, that doesn't matter as long as you have people in your life who you care for.
0: She assembles this kind of funny little support team. You know, she's yeah. walking around with the polar bear and the aeronaut with his high air balloon. And from his, Texas. Yeah, from <laughs> Texas. Like, I just kind of couldn't help but picture Dubya, you know, in his being. And I don't know if you saw the movie Vice, but that was sort of like what I was thinking about was um, oh, no. Sam Rockwell's portrayal of of Dubya as this like Texas guy. Yeah, so she she assembles her own little family. I want to touch on the bears before we start to wrap up because I I love the bears. I love Yorick. I think it's interesting that at the beginning he's kind of portrayed as this, like, lonely drunk who's alone. He is. It's so so weird in hindsight. I'm like, what made Philip Pullman cast the polar bear as,
1: like, the drunk loser?
0: And a murderer. And a murderer. (laughs) Like, Like, the
1: reason he's there is because he murdered another bear, like her father, who's also a murderer. Yeah, he's such a loose
0: cannon. And as a kid, I definitely didn't understand that as much. Whereas I'm like, he's just drinking alone. That's what yeah. he's doing. He's like day drinking by himself and he lost his armor and so he feels alone. And uh, I just thought it was really funny. And then I know that this is actually really dark, but it also made me laugh when his brother, Eufer, I think is how you pronounce it I O U F U R F E R. Mm-hmm. Again, these words are very hard to pronounce, but He wants a daemon so badly that when Lyra goes in to meet him, he's literally sitting with, like, a stuffed animal on his leg.
1: Yeah, that is quite an image. Presiding. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And he's turned his whole palace into, like, Versailles. He's trying to pretend to be someone that he's not. He's trying to become a human. And that whole like the way that he lies to himself um even though bears aren't supposed to lie he goes against his nature that whole thing was so interesting it was very and that and then that's how yorick is able to trick him even though bears aren't able to trick one another like that was a good twist that totally blew my mind
0: yeah and lyra is able to trick him by pretending that she's become yorick's daemon and being like I can become your daemon if you kill Yorick. Like, let me just deal with it. And that that's sort of the card that she plays. I thought that was brilliant. Just like everybody's motives were so distinct i loved how each group was driven by different things i loved how it was all written in it's like unique mythology depending on where you were and who she was dealing with like i just loved it and it was fascinating to just see what each character i you know i can't really say Mm -hmm. people because we're talking about the bears right now but to see how they all were motivated and it's all about
1: power really yeah it's such a well-constructed book. I actually went back and I read the very first scene again because that scene like lays everything out. We even, they even talk about Yofer and how he is this bear who has completely changed his kingdom and wants to have a daemon. But when I read that at the very beginning, I didn't understand what was going on. So I'm sure if you went Right back to the start, and you reread it, you just keep getting more good things out of it. Yeah, and I also, we haven't touched on this, but I think that the concept of the golden compass itself Mm -hmm. is so interesting that Lyra has access to this kind of divining tool that can tell the future, but it's so hard to read that. Most people are never able to use it. And everyone assumes that since she's a kid, she won't be able to use it. One of the professors or priests, sorry, says that she has no spiritual potential. Everyone writes her off. Meanwhile, she is completely able to read this. And that's why she's able to like, it gives her the faith in herself to like do what she's able to do, especially when it comes to organizing that fight to the death between Yofer and Yorek, which we were just talking about.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that she has the power to see the future. And I think any time a book creates that sort of a device, whether whether it's in the form of a physical device or just sort of like an innate ability to see the future, it always makes me think about like what the author is trying to say about is it good or bad to have that capability. Mm-hmm. Like if you were given that choice, if you were in Lyra's position and, and somebody said to you, here, you can have this tool that will allow you to see the future or you can turn it down and just kind of like live like other humans and see what happens randomly. Yeah. I, I just always find that to be an interesting question. and I think this book is very pro seeing the future because Lyra is able to do so much
1: with the tool that she has. Yeah. She helps her motley crew. She does not do what I would do if I had that, which would be like ask, Oh, are Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt going to get back together? Like I would totally go off script and use it for other means, maybe start like a a betting website, but she uses it for purely noble purposes. And it is an essential part of the book. And it's also an essential part of her self-discovery. Like she, she learns how to read this impenetrable machine. And she does so by like trusting herself and going deep into herself because she is special, even if everybody writes her off.
0: One thing I expected to find more of in the way of think pieces and, and criticism online was stories about Lyra as like a feminist icon and a feminist hero. And I went through the first six, seven, eight, Pages worth of google search results and there's nothing why do you think that is i don't know doesn't that surprise
1: you it does surprise me It does surprise me.
0: Because, you know, I've I've done this a lot, and that usually comes up. I mean, Ella Enchanted, for example, there were tons of search results, tons of think pieces about Ella as a feminist icon, how she was before her time. And I was so ready to have this conversation with you that was driven by all these stories that I found, quoting all these authors who were talking about how Lyra had been like the OG feminist icon for them. And I couldn't find it. And the only thing that I really found, again, from an interview with Philip Pullman, was that like he didn't really have any strong motive for making Lyra a girl like he didn't try to make a political statement by casting Mm -hmm. her as a girl instead of a boy he just kind of was driven by her personality which I like you know Mm -hmm. I appreciate the fact that what defines her isn't her gender like she just happens to be this badass kid who could be a heroine for a lot of girl readers but it's it is interesting especially in like the mid-90s when this book was written and you have to assume it took him years and years to write because the, myth- the mythology is so deep like this male author wrote a little girl heroine it's it's just it's fascinating to me that there wasn't more to that and I was kind of disappointed honestly that I didn't find a lot out there
1: I think we have to write it because I think that there is a case that can be made for this big time I mean her her status as a girl like does play into the entire book it's why she is an outsider among the priests at Oxford College it's why she immediately sort of falls in the trap of Mrs. Coulter's it's because Mrs. Coulter's the first person to treat her like a girl she's like oh maybe I do like dresses you know it's like the first time she's ever been put into the box of gender expectations and then I think in the second two books it also plays a big role because that's when she falls in love Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that but I I remember like my first the first date couple I stand was Lyra and Will and it killed me what happens at the end which I'm not spoiling but um yeah you're right I also think it does tie back into the branding of the book going back to those awful covers like it was like they didn't know the marketers didn't know who this book was for and they didn't know if they should be marketing it towards boys or girls so the covers a lot of them were like very cheesy and I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm like extrapolating, but maybe that plays into it. That it's a book about a girl, but it's for everybody.
0: I think you're right. I think you'll appreciate this as somebody who I assume deals in these kinds of stats a lot with your job. I found that, again, in 1996, this book had a $250,000 ad promo budget. Elena's eyes are widening, everyone. Wow. 100,000 A big... 100, first print. Like they knew it was going to be big. They knew it was going to wow. be huge. In 1990. Five ninety six. That's like a lot. I mean, that's a lot of money now, but 20 wow. years ago, that's an insane amount of money.
1: Wow. Well, you know, that is a lot of money. I'm not surprised. This book is like a blockbuster of a book. It is brilliant. It's unlike anything I've ever read. And for me, it, it, of course, it's a huge perk that it's about this incredible girl who like defies every expectation, every stereotype, both in literature and in the world that she's in. Like she defies, she defies her peers and she defies, a reader's expectations too of how a girl should be. I mean, she's a queen. She's a total queen in training.
0: <laughs> she's a queen. And the only other thing that I'll say about my frustration about the lack of like feminist critique of this book or like feminist rah rahing of this book out there is um, actually something that I found in a, in a story written about the movie and how the original movie had been such a failure. And I guess they changed the ending a lot in the original movie. Um, and they sort of like took all the darkness, they skipped the whole part where Lord Azrael kills Roger by taking his daemon away from him, and they're talking about the significance of that ending in the book and how it was such a disservice to the story to take that out of the plot entirely. And the author says, "'Azrael, far from being the gallant hero Lyra believed he was, is as fundamentally corrupt and wicked as anyone else in her world.' And when Lyra decides to walk through the portal to another world herself without waiting for Israel or anyone else, we realize what kind of story we were reading this whole time. It's one in which the little girl is not there to help the big, strong man save the world, but one in which the little girl herself will do the saving.
1: Wow, I just got chills. Yay. I totally got chills. And I also love the logic she uses about why she should cross the bridge. It is such good logic. She says, well, everybody else thinks that dust is bad. And if everybody else thinks that, because these people are like her mom, her dad, the priests, like Oxford College, then it must be good, good, because all of those people are terrible. And lo and behold, she's right. She goes, she walks into the sunset, that is the northern lights, and she 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 uses her path as anything that's diametrically opposed to the people who have proven themselves to be like corrupt and evil. so it's it's pretty solid logic, I'd say, for a twelve year old.
0: Yeah, and the final sentence of the book is, So Lyra and her daemon turned away from the world they were born in and looked toward the sun and walked into the sky.
1: What a sentence. Don't you just want to pick up the next book? I do.
0: That is a good cliffhanger. It's such a good cliffhanger. I miss cliffhangers. We don't get them enough in adult books.
1: I think we might have to start reading more high fantasy. I think that is the takeaway from our trip into The Golden Compass.
0: (laughs) I I think you might be right. I think that's true. My husband's been trying to get me to read Game of Thrones. I have not read it, which I know is pretty embarrassing to admit and he's like just read the first one I think you'll really like it and after reading this again I'm thinking
1: "Hmm, maybe he's right yeah I think so too I do want to read ones where women are the main characters there's one that just came out that seems pretty tempting and and big and all about women so I think after this that, that might be my next read
0: I think I know what the answer to this question is going to be for you, but I will ask it as I always do. Did coming back to The Golden Compass make you dislike the book in some way? Did it not hold up for you somehow? Or did it make you love it all the more?
1: No, it made me love it all the more. It made me feel very fondly towards my younger self. And for however much she was able to understand the book, I admire her for loving it anyway. And I want to thank Philip Pullman for like giving this story to us and i'm very excited that so many more people are gonna come to it because of the bbc adaptation i hope it brings them back to the book as as always but it's a great story and that this is a time when we really need great stories so
0: i echo all of that i'm excited to see the adaptation i'll definitely be on the lookout for more updates about it i'll include the trailer to it in the show notes for those who want to take a look at it i'll also include the trailer for the 2007 movie because although it was a bomb the trailer is pretty cool
1: yeah. What do you think your Damon would be? Have you decided?
0: That's. A, I don't know. I think I'm undecided too. I mean, like I said, as I was reading this book, I was looking at my dog the whole time. So I was like, maybe you're my Damon, but I don't think my Damon is actually a golden retriever. Like, I don't think that's actually that representative of my personality. I think I'd probably lean more toward like the cat end of the spectrum.
1: What do you there think? There are some really good cats in this book, like Cat Damons, I mean. I yeah. think it's Fa quarters cat. Uh it's very beautiful. I, I don't know. I kinda think I'm a bird okay. of some sort. Like maybe a a soaring bird. But I don't know. I kinda would want something that was cuddly. Yeah. Like, that you can pet, you know? I don't think you can pet a bird. No, well, there's so many moments where Lyra was just, like, holding Pan to her
0: chest, and they were, like, anytime they would get scared, and then she would just hold, hold him close to her, and it just made me so happy and just feel so sad yeah. that she's alone.
1: Did you look up what her what Pan ended up settling into? I looked it up. I couldn't resist. Tell me. I didn't look it up. It is an animal, which I will be honest, I've never heard of before. It's a pine marten. Is that like a monkey? It sounds like a monkey. It's like a weasel. It's like a British weasel. I know. What? Right? It's like a prairie We're both dog. we faces. Yeah. It's like pan. It's sort of anticlimactic. Like, I want pan to become like a panther or something. But it becomes a weasel. That's so interesting. Well,
0: I do want to come back to the second book at some point, maybe the third. I think it might take my while to get there, but I would absolutely like to finish this series. And who knows? Maybe we'll do an episode on it at some point.
1: Sounds good. Let me know what you think if you ever get around to those other books. I will. So what else have you been reading lately? What
0: are you reading now that you would want to recommend to our listeners? I'm sure oh you have gosh. quite a stack book editor
1: that you oh, are. Hold on. What am I... I just read a book for adults that reminded me like how different my world is. I just finished um, normal people by Sally Rooney comes out in April and it's kind of like a, a romantic comedy for really messed up people. But a book that I have loved lately, I read that and I, there's another podcast I love called pop culture happy hour and Linda Holmes is the host. She just wrote a really, really lovely, charming kind of romance, but more like, book about one woman's self-discovery that comes out in June, I believe. And it's called Evie Drake Starts Over. So if you're looking for a book that makes you feel warm and cuddly and like new beginnings are possible, I recommend that one. And if you're looking for a book about kind of how complicated human relationships can be, I recommend Normal People. And those both come out soon.
0: Well, I'll include links to both of them in the show notes. Although it sounds like at least at the time of this recording, it would be a pre-order situation, which is great. Yes. Pre-order books for authors, people. If you love an author, you're excited about a book, pre-order them. It's really great for the authors. It really helps them out. So I'll include links to both of those titles in the show notes, as well as a link to purchase The Golden Compass if you're interested. As a reminder, listeners, if you love SSR and you want to support us, if you shop through those links that I include in the show notes, I get a very teeny tiny little portion of those sales. So thank you for supporting the show. If you're going to buy the books anyway, you might as well shop them through the SSR show notes. Why not? And I would encourage you to pick up The Golden Compass. It's really, really a great and compelling read and it will be a completely different reading experience for you if you read it 15, 20 years ago as a kid.
1: Yeah, we need to talk through the philosophy with some people. So I, I need I need all the help I can get. Yeah, <laughs> and we need
0: a little wine. We need more people. We just need reinforcements in general. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Elena. I had so much fun talking about this book with you.
1: Thank you. I, I can't wait to listen to future episodes. Thanks so much, Allie. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.